0: The Belly of the Beast, with Brendan McCauley, a go-loud original.
1: On an evening in February 1919, in a small kitchen on the Cabra Road, Broy's world is about to become a whole lot more precarious when Collins, his hero, asks him to commit one of the most notorious acts of espionage in modern European history. Collins wants Broy to smuggle him into the nerve centre of British intelligence, into the belly of the
2: beast. The volunteers want you to come to my house tonight. The time had come for direct contact with me.
3: Broy should meet Michael Collins directly.
1: The history of Ireland is one of chaos, violence and despair, identified by those in colonial power as profligate and wasteful of the lands they wish to claim as their own. Lands were confiscated and planted. The landlords set roofs of impoverished homes alight, and rebel blood flowed through glens and valleys into the streams which once breathed life into the land. There was starvation, language stolen, and customs banished into the shadows. And to combat this, from time to time some arose. They rose above all others. And with the fist gripped tightly, they slammed the table and cried, No more! One after another, rebels stared into the eyes of the British beast and led farmers, poets, carpenters and volunteer soldiers into battle. Time after time, efforts failed and they were further punished for dreaming of freedom. But one thing they all lacked was the ability to see what the beast could see to hear what the beast heard and to smell what the beast could smell. That was until Ned Broy, a young man from rural Kildare, a typewriter, a unique ability to keep calm under pressure and a sense of justice came to the fore. It was doing this which led him to his first clandestine meeting with the most wanted man in the British Empire at the time, one Michael Collins. In the days after the flames stopped, the centre of Dublin lay in ruins. Terror was in the air. Heavy artillery had rained down on the rebel outposts bringing the doomed 1916 Rising to a swift end. The merciless British response and executions by firing squad of the 15 leaders left a blood-like tang in the air. It was all these combined events that had a radicalising impact on the young Ned Broy. The man whose sole purpose was once to be an international athlete was now about to make the most momentous decision of his life. At some point... Somewhere between fear and desperation, Ned Broy decided his life was no longer that of a single-minded athlete. It was now a life dedicated to the people of his country. It was the impact of those executions by the British of the 1916 leaders that changed Ned Broy from being a moderate nationalist to becoming a spy for the IRA. Dermot Farreter explains.
4: Well, the British government made a hames of the executions the executions weren't surprising and they were completely understandable Britain was at war this was highly treasonous activity and it was regarded as such and was treated as such the problem from the British perspective was the way they approached it because they stretched out the executions instead of doing them suddenly and quickly they were stretched out allowing sympathy to build, allowing greater awareness of what was going on to build. One contemporary described it as like seeing blood seeping from behind a closed door, you know, slowly coming out. Is there another one on the rumours that were circulating? And then there was the overreaction in relation to the number who were arrested. Far more were arrested than were involved in the Rising, and the British authorities were lying on very out-of-date information in relation to uh, their suspects and, and supposedly uh, political radicals, many of whom were no longer political radicals if they'd ever been political radicals. So the arrest of in, and internment of, of, of so many also played a part. Uh, and why wouldn't Ned Broy have been affected by that?
1: Dublin was reeling after 1916. I asked Professor Michael Laffin, my old history professor from UCD, to explain about the shock bewilderment and impact of the 1916 Rising on the people of Dublin and on Ned Broy in particular.
5: Well, Ned Broy, like so many other Irish nationalists, was caught off guard by the Rising, uh, was uh, astonished by it, uh, and as it continued day after day, lasting far longer than people thought possible, it suddenly emerged as something very serious, something formidable, something that whether or not one one, one agreed with it, one had to take it seriously. Uh, And he knew and everybody knew that Ireland was now transformed. I think it's safe to say that Ned Broy was among very, very many who in early 1917 took the view, everything has changed. Easter Rising has radicalised Irish nationalism anti-home rulers have now begun winning by-elections. So clearly uh, it's not just a flash in the pan. It's not just a a sympathy with the Rebels in the immediate aftermath of the Rising. This is something that is enduring. So I think it's very fair to presume that Roy was one of those who took the view, Uh, we live now in a different world. Uh, And he began providing information. First of all, the Irish volunteers, and then later specifically to Michael Collins, who had been uh, interned until Christmas 1916 and didn't begin making his mark until well into 1917. But eventually, as we know, uh, he was the man to whom Broy went with information uh, and with, with warnings about what the British would plan to do.
1: Around noon on Easter Monday 1916, telephone reports were coming into the G Division office from the General Police Office in Dublin Castle concerning certain marches of volunteers around the city. The volunteers had been formed in 1913 with a view to maintaining the rights to national independence and to secure that right in arms. These reports stated that volunteers had occupied certain buildings in the city including the General Post Office, Jacob's Biscuit Factory in Ainger Street and Boland's Mills at Grand Canal Dock. Detectives who had accompanied and observed these various marching parties as per their normal manner of supervising and monitoring subversion began to return to the office with similar stories. The volunteers had indeed broken into and had set up barricades in various buildings across the city. The Chief Commissioner of the Dublin Metropolitan Police ordered that all members of the police force off the streets and into their barracks. The city was to be put under the control of the British Army garrisoned in Dublin at the time and reinforcements were called for. This was seen as an act of war and the largely unarmed police force did not have the capability to manage what was unfolding. Ned Broy and his comrades mounted a watching brief The doors and windows of the police station were secured by armed British Army soldiers in case of attack and takeover. Many of the soldiers were Dubliners, from whatever source, either soldiers garrisoned and in training for dispatch to the trenches of the Battle of the Somme, or soldiers home and leave. There was little for the G-men to do except observe, attending to the occasional visitors to the public desk who were desperately seeking information on missing persons. The Rising was very unpopular with Dubliners at the time and for several weeks afterwards. The rebels who had started the Rising were seen as troublemakers and rabble-rousers who embarked on a ridiculous, reckless and foolhardy rebellion against the British Empire. And the obvious and immediate impact of this rebellion was the destruction of the centre of the city and the consequence, loss of jobs and damage to businesses.
2: Ned Broy tells us... One morning, about the middle of Easter week, a field gun appeared outside our police station on the Trinity College side of the road. A large crowd of sightseers soon collected, men, women, and children. The whole attitude of the crowd was like what we would be observing a steamroller or a fire engine. We got tired of watching at the windows, waiting to see a gun firing real shells and so resumed card playing inside. After some time, there was a swishing sound in the street and we heard the crowd scampering as fast as it could. On looking out, we saw one of the artillerymen lying on the road where he had been killed by a bullet fired from the corner building of Bachelor's Walk. Apparently, the gun was about to be fired at that building. The field gun was taken down Tower Street and we heard it firing from the Butt Ridge area later on. One could see some bizarre sights from the windows during that week. Corner boys wearing silk hats, ladies from the slums sporting fur coats, a cycling corps of barefooted young urchins riding brand new bicycles stolen from some of the shops, and members of the underworld carrying umbrellas. Members of the housebreaking squad were revolted at the sight of so much stolen property being flaunted before their eyes. They sallied out and soon filled the cells at College Street with prisoners. As
1: I sit here, working on my laptop in my home, which was first owned by the legendary spy Ned Broy, I often wonder what he would have made of the always-on instant access communications that we take for granted today. Technology has revolutionised our means of communication and data storage over the last three decades. But for Ned Broy, it was the introduction of the manual typewriter into his working environment in the early 1900s that was to precipitate his espionage endeavours on behalf of the Irish rebels fighting for Irish independence from the British in the years after the 1916 Rising. After three years on the beat as a uniformed policeman, He applied for and was appointed to the infamous G-Division, the armed detective branch which investigated all the crimes committed in the city. The G-Men, as they were called, investigated political crimes, monitored suspicious political activity and were an anti-subversive force mainly engaged in watching and foiling nationalist activities and challenges to the British presence. Now solidly placed within the HQ of British intelligence, Ned Broy started to pass on important and military-sensitive information to the Irish volunteers, who were soon to be renamed the Irish Republican Army. He would soon go on to be a close confidant of Michael Collins, who was at the time head of IRA intelligence operations, meeting him secretly and in great fear for their personal safety on a regular basis. Ned Roy was a fast and accurate typist, and these skills were put to good use when he was allocated to political duties within the Dublin Metropolitan Police, monitoring the political pulse of the capital city, and at the age of 27, in the clerical section of the notorious G Division in Exchange Court just off Dublin Castle, starting in March 1915. It's hard to imagine today, in 2022, But the introduction of typewriters within the police force had a seismic impact in intelligence gathering at the time and would, ironically, soon have significant ramifications for those involved in counterintelligence. Ned Broy himself tells us...
2: Up until that time, all work there had been done in handwriting and the authorities wanted to modernise the organisation by means of typewriters, card indexes and so on. Otherwise, I would not have been working in that sensitive office as I was very junior in the service. The section of the G division doing political duty had men at all the railway stations and boats. Their job was to take a note of any suspects leaving the city, ascertain the station to which they had taken tickets and sent cipher wires or coded messages to the police at their destination. Similarly, Any man travelling to Dublin about whom cipher wires or coded messages were received, giving their names or descriptions, were observed on arrival and shadowed to their destinations in Dublin. Another section of the G-Division had the duty of going around town all day and night observing the movements of suspects. The results of all these observations were carefully noted in a set of books in the office. Every detective made his entries in a book of his own. There was also a very large central book giving all the particulars, history and so on of each suspect. And into this book was transferred daily the information contained in each detective's book. All these entries were made in handwriting. The superintendent of the G division where I joined was a man called Owen Bryan. He had an absolutely thorough knowledge of suspects and would have been quite capable of replacing all the record books from memory, if necessary. Daily reports were made to the government as regards the activities and movements of suspects. In addition, weekly reports were made to government given the history of the week's activities and a general review of the complete political activity in the district. There was also a monthly report. Several copies made of each report. One copy was sent to the Commissioner of the DMP, Colonel Edgeworth Johnstone. Another copy was sent to the Director of Military Intelligence, Major Price, and a further copy was sent to the government. Towards the end of 1915, my section of the G Division was moved into the new police station at 1 Great Brunswick Street, occupying the portion of the building near De Lear Street.
1: Broy decided he was one of the few in a position of real influence in the Nationalists' ability to gain freedom. Being a detective in the centre of the British Intelligence Network in Dublin, he had access to all the intelligence and information concerning the activities of the IRA rebels. With the keys into the mind of the beast, Broy began to share this information with the rebels. I can't help but think of what nerves of steel would this require, what subterfuge and bravery! The decision to live life on a knife edge at his own will, with no training in espionage or any history of secrecy, Broy decided that he would be the man to be the link between the IRA efforts and the efforts of the Empire. Something as seemingly insignificant as a typewriter was now having a seismic impact. And those involved in counterintelligence against the old British enemy in Ireland. Ned Broy, the policeman turned spy, now typed the majority of intelligence reports on political activity by the rebels. He had his finger on the pulse of military intelligence within Dublin. Each day, from his desk, he typed a copy for the police commissioner, a copy for the director of military intelligence, a copy for the government... And the most outrageous of moves, he typed a copy for the rebels. But the reports had to find their way into the right hands reports of raids to happen, arrests to be made, people to take out. Broy was active here too, in touch with key contacts, always in the shadows, always looking behind him. Nights of planning and subterfuge, always leaving no trace, waiting for an enemy hand on the shoulder or a bullet in the back. At the centre of this labyrinth of intrigue was Michael Collins, the de facto head of IRA intelligence.
2: Following the insurrection in 1916, there were a great many retirements on pension and promotions and transfers in the police until about March 1917, when I invariably found myself alone in the office in Great Brunswick Street from 11am for the rest of the day. In this office were retained most of the documents captured in 1916 in which I was deeply interested as I had been carefully studying the history of Irish insurrections and the reasons for their failure. At that time it was rumoured that there was going to be another rising and I was of the opinion that another rising would be sheer imbecility, that there had been enough risings considering the manner in which the initiative had always been lost at the very start of them. But for the modernization of that office, a person of my short service would not have been left in charge of it. I never had any intention of staying in the police force as I had several invitations to go to America and I regarded myself as just an Irish nationalist who had found his way through force of circumstances into this office. I began to consider if it would be of any value to those we called the Sinn Féiners if they were in possession of the information which I had. At this time, next to Superintendent Brian, I had probably the best knowledge of all the activities and of the political suspects and the real significance of that information. I made up my mind that I would go all out to help them, regardless of the consequences. The question then was how could I help? All contact in the past between members of the detective force and extreme nationalists inevitably ended in the undoing of the latter. I thought on this problem for a long time and came to the decision that whoever I would deal with would have to be somebody extreme, who hated England, and who would be prepared to take a chance. I finally decided that the best place to make such a contact was through some nationalist shop, where callers would not attract any special notice. Weighing the merits of the various shops controlled by nationalist sympathisers, I finally came to the conclusion that there was only one possible option, namely O'Hanrahan's of 384 North Circular Road. Michael O'Hanrahan had been executed in 1916. His brother Harry and two sisters ran the shop. They were all, of course, what the police called notorious Sinn Féiners. I myself could not dare to visit this shop. Then I thought of a Sinn Féinor who was married to a first cousin of mine. His name was Patrick Tracy and he was employed as clerk at Kingsbridge railway station. I had a talk with Tracy and he agreed to transfer any information to O'Hannoran's shop I wanted transferred. I told Tracy to tell O'Hanoran that no information was to come back to me. From that on, every secret and confidential document, police code, etc., that came into my hands was sent through Tracy to Ahanrahan. One document I remember very clearly dealt with the action proposed to be taken by the volunteers to combat conscription. It was one of the few documents concerning which I heard anything back from Ahanrahan. He told Tracy to inform me that the volunteers took a very serious view of the fact. That the castle authorities had obtained possession of this document and how they had obtained this document.
1: Women played a really significant role in the armed struggle for Irish independence. One of those women, Ailio Hannerham, ran a general shop at 384 North Circular Road, referred to by Ned Broy. I asked historian Dr. Gerry O'Neill. Who is specialized in women in the War of Independence about the Ohanrahan sisters?
0: The Ohanrahans. The three sisters, Eily, Maura and Anya, and their brother Harry moved into 384 North Circular Road in Dublin after the execution of their brother. They lost the house in Connacht Street. Um, I think with the help of National Aid, in fact Eily was one of the founder members of the Irish Volunteers Dependence Fund, but with the help of that, they were able to establish the shop there. It's quite a large corner building and they had the accommodation over the shop. Now, it was in a prominent position. It was within a stone's throw of Mountjoy Jail. So it was a good spot for people to drop messages in and out. Now, Eileen's pension application states that from, I think it was August 1917, Ned Broy began dropping off messages. Possibly because her brother was a known member also of the IRB and had taken up the, taken up the baton, I suppose, really, after uh, Michael's execution. But the brother was also in and out of jail, being jailed or being interned, etc. So that baton was subsequently passed on to Eile. So she and her sisters, but primarily Eile, looked after IRB dispatches, not just dispatches, but also arms and ammunition were kept in that particular house. Now, she says she had an arms dump on the roof of it and right throughout the War of Independence, despite numerous raids, the stash of ammunition was never found. Neither were the documents at that stage ever found. But mostly messages were left in, by Broy in particular. Then they were passed on very quickly to those who came in to collect them. I think a a guy called Thomas Gay from Capel Street Library was probably one of them.
1: The anti-conscription campaign was a huge success for Sinn Féin and for the volunteers. The First World War had entered its fourth devastating year by early 1918, and the British government were desperate to bulk up the numbers of men that could be sent to battle to engage in the final push against the Germans. In April, despite a huge abhorrence in nationalist Ireland at young men being forced to fight in the bloodbath of European battlefields, The British government passed the Military Services Act, introducing conscription in Ireland. This triggered opposition from every shade of public opinion, including the Irish Home Rule Party, Labour, the trade unions and, crucially, the Catholic Church. Sinn Féin was now provided with another cause to mobilise around and to exploit. A large war chest was accumulated through public subscription and what would now be called mass passive resistance culminated in a national strike. In the face of this response, the British government decided not to impose conscription. In this way, it succeeded in triggering most of the negative outcomes of having had introduced conscription without accruing any of the benefits of the war effort. Professor Michael Laffan explains the origin of the conscription crisis and its dramatic impact on the
5: independence struggle. Strangely... Two people who influenced events in Ireland in 1918 were Lenin and Trotsky, because in March 1918, they surrendered to the Germans. Germany won the First World War on the Eastern Front. The result, the Germans could move a million men from the Eastern to the Western Fronts. They broke through the deadlock. They entered the deadlock that had existed since September 1914. They broke through the Allied lines and it looked as if they're going to capture Paris. Panic course, in London and Paris. And now, at this stage, Lloyd George, by now Prime Minister, decided that conscription must be imposed on Ireland. Until then, Ireland had almost an unfairly easy war. Conscription had been imposed in England, Scotland and Wales in early 1916, but not in Ireland. John Redmond urged uh, the British government then on to ask, don't do it, the Irish won't like it. Well, the English, Scots and Welsh didn't like it either, but they had to put up with it. But Redmond was pampered and indulged, and the Irish were not forced to endure conscription. Now, in uh, March 1918, with the great crisis in the war, Lloyd George felt we have to impose conscription on Ireland. And that provoked a massive uh, reaction in Ireland. Determination on the part of very many Irish people, we will fight and, if necessary, die in Ireland to avoid being sent to fight and die in France. Uh, And that anti-conscription campaign further radicalised Irish nationalism. Uh, The new Sinn Féin party was able to engage, and the Irish volunteers, able to engage in a very close alliance with the Catholic Church, thereby acquiring respectability. And uh, there was very soon uh, an awareness on almost all sides that, Uh, Home Rule could not be enforced in Ireland without massive bloodshed and that, as was remarked at a meeting of the British Cabinet, we would need to send more soldiers to Ireland to impose conscription than we could ever get out of Ireland by conscription.
1: The British' response to their failed conscription campaign was to arrest the entire leadership of Sinn Féin under spurious and utterly false charges, and this became known as the German Plot. ...alleging that the Sinn Féin leadership... ...Eamon de Valera, Arthur Griffith, Cahal Brewer... ...were working closely with the Germans... ...as an act of high treason at a time of war. The German plot was to be a significant turning point... ...in Ned Broy's spying activity... ...in two significant ways. He'd gone to great lengths to pass on warnings... ...and information of the impending arrests... ...due to take place on the 17th of May. He passed on lists of those to be arrested... 73 people in all to Tracy, who duly passed them on to O'Hanrahan's. In speaking of his communications with Tracy, Ned Broy gives
2: an insight of the labyrinthine journey of such intelligence. I gave Tracy a copy of the complete list of the Shinners to be arrested on the Wednesday, 48 hours before the arrests were to take place. I met him in a public house in Bamburg Street. I got Tracy to copy the particulars in his own handwriting, destroyed my list there and then, and instructed Tracy that in the usual manner he should get O'Hanoran to copy this list in his own handwriting and destroy Tracy's list. Ned Roy had been assigned
1: telephone duty in the G Division office on the night of the arrests. He could not believe it as messages were coming through confirming the arrest and capture of the 73 hadn't he specifically warned of their impending arrests. He was particularly flabbergasted when the word came through that that man, meaning Eamot de Valera, had boarded the southbound train at Harcourt Street Station. He was convinced that de Valera would get off the train before his home station of Greystones. He could not believe it eventually when the message came through that that man had been arrested. But Ned Broy not have known is that de Valera felt the arrests would be a great propaganda coup for Sinn Féin and the drive for Irish independence and allowed himself and others to be arrested. Ned Broy was flabbergasted that his information had not been acted on. This suggested to him that there was a breakdown in communications and that he might be exposed and vulnerable. He also became aware of a time lag in getting intelligence to the volunteers as he had to wait until Tracy finished his work for the day, resulting in an inevitable delay in transferring the information. The failure to avert the German plot arrests convinced Ned Broy of one important thing. It was imperative that he would have instant access to the top leadership of the volunteers. And this meant only one person, Michael Collins. Professor Laffon explains how the German plot was such an important turning point in Ned Broy's spying career and modus operandi.
5: The German plot arrests, about which Ned Roy had, had given clear warning, they were a turning point. And after that, he and Collins were in pretty regular contact, directly or indirectly through intermediaries. And he knew that Collins was the man to vote. Collins is the man who had taken his warnings about the arrests seriously and had acted on them in a way in which other leaders didn't. Here was a man to whom it was worthwhile giving information. And I think the German plot, Arrests of May 1918, consolidated the link between Broy and Collins
1: At this time, unmarried policemen lived in the Great Brunswick Street barracks, where a roster of men fulfilled the role of quartermaster and mess officer, ordering and arranging for delivery of food and provisions to the barracks, and ultimately paying the invoices. Ned Broy served as quartermaster and mess officer, and it was in this capacity that he met Marie Smart, who works in the accounts section of Alex Ventilators grocery stores in O'Connell Street. Marie Smart was engaged to be married late in February 1919 to Michael Foley who ran a typewriter repair business on Bachelors Walk and was soon to set up home in 5 Cabra Road, Fibsborough. Smart was an active member of mBan, and had served in the Jacob's Biscuit Factory in Anger Street during the 1916 Rising and had delivered arms and dispatches all over the country before and after the 1916 Rising. Foley was also a very active member of the Irish Volunteers and provided a safe house for many volunteers who were on the run from the British authorities. The Foleys provided secure accommodation for Michael Collins at number 5 Cabra Road for several months. Mary Smart in her witness statement tells us
3: The G Division of the DMP, which at that time was stationed at College Green, had a mess account at Findlayter's grocery shop. And a messman used to come to Findlater's every week to pay the bill. This messman was changed every six months or so, and in that way I got to know a number of the G men, including Eamon Broy. I can't remember exactly when I met him first, but it must have been around mid 1918. Finding out that I was interested in the Gaelic League, he always spoke in Gaelic to me and always warmed me when a raid was planned on volunteers' houses, which information. I passed on to Mihal. One day in January 1919, Broy came into the cash office. He pretended to be settling up a bill and wrote down, in Irish, vital information on my blotting paper. I telephoned this to Mihal immediately to his office at 25 Bachelors Walk. He suggested that Broy should meet Michael Collins directly. And so it was that a meeting was set up to take place in 5 Cabra Road.
1: And this is how it came about that Ned Broy was to meet his great hero for the first time. A man of whom he had heard so much in dispatches and who was renowned for his intelligence, charm and good looks. Ned Broy goes on to tell us in his witness statement.
2: During my whole time of my association with Tracy and O'Hanrahan, I did not know who handled the documents I transmitted. I knew Miss Moira Smart, who worked at Findletters. We had many talks about Sinn Féin, the insurrection and national activities, and we both solemnly agreed that violence was the only method. One day she said to me, you should meet Mick Collins. I was deeply intrigued to know who or what this man Collins was like because whoever was to handle the information I was giving directly had to trust me first of all and would have to understand the significance of the information would need to have control of the volunteers and be able to think and act quickly. Around this time, Tracy said to me, the volunteers want you to come to my house tonight. It's about a meeting. At Tracy's house on Millmount Avenue, Drumcondra, I met with Greg Murphy, who I found out was the one who transmitted all my information to the volunteers. He said I was to come to 5 Caber Road, the residence of Mr. and Mrs. of Ofoglu. I was filled with curiosity. Would this Michael Collins be the ideal man I had been dreaming of for a couple of years? Looking up a police record book to see what was known about him, I discovered he was a six-footer, a cork man, very intelligent, young and powerful. There was no photograph of him at the time in the record book, so steeped in curiosity, I went to 5 Cabra Road and was received in the kitchen by the Foley's, a place where every extreme nationalist visit at one time or another. I was not long there when Greg Murphy and Michael Collins arrived. I had studied for so long the type of man I would need to act efficiently given the information I would make available. At the moment I saw Michael at the door, before he had time to walk across and shake hands, I knew that this was the man. He was dressed in black leggings, green breeches and a trench coat with all the usual buttons, belts and rings. He was very handsome, obviously full of energy and with a mind quick as lightning. The follies went away and I had a long thought with would from about 8pm until midnight, he thanked me for all the information I had already given and said how important this information was to the cause. I asked him about the German plot and he looked at Greg Murphy and both smiled and said no more. Mick said the time had come for direct contact with me, that they were going ahead with the movement no matter what was in front of it and that there would be no further failure to utilize the valuable information I was giving we discussed the past failed Fenian rebellions and they mainly failed due to informers and that there was numerous and many accounts of such informants in the police archive.
1: It was thus in February 1919 an audacious plan was conceived to commit one of the most notorious acts of espionage in modern European history. Michael Collins, the de facto head of intelligence, had decided that Broy would be central to the success of his intelligence war and that Ned Broy would smuggle Michael Collins into the nerve centre of the police intelligence files. I sleep in the master room of our house, the one in which I'm sure Ned Broy also slept. Thankfully, I sleep soundly, but I often wonder how well did Ned Broy sleep as he contemplated what he had promised Michael Collins that he would do on that fateful evening. Did he begin to imagine the enormity of the task ahead and the danger? How is he going to smuggle the leader of the Irish Volunteers into the file rooms and the archive of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, thus enabling him to thrall through secret service files? Did he sleep well as he contemplated smuggling the arch enemy of the British Empire right into the belly of the Imperial Beast? In the next episode, we slip through the shadows with Broy as he spirits Michael Collins into the nerve centre of the belly of the beast. He will not only conspire to commit one of the most daring acts of subterfuge
2: then there was a heavy knock at the door
1: but also provide the Irish rebels
2: my heart nearly stopped
1: with the intelligence apparatus
2: I looked at Collins and Noonan and they stared back at me
1: which will ultimately bring the British to the negotiation table.
2: What were we going to do?
1: And towards independence.
2: Never was he more exposed or in danger.
1: This podcast is researched, written and presented by me, Brendan Macaulay. The podcast is produced and edited by Orne O'Halloran, sound design from Lachlan Hart. The podcast is executive produced by Owen Brennan for Go Loud, Darren Cleary is our commissioning editor. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast.